Leviticus 16. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we bless you and praise you. Tonight I pray for all those who will be receiving sacraments this Easter. Lord, give them confidence, protect them from all the attacks of the evil one. And Lord, may we all love you more tonight. Uh, whatever happened today, Jesus, we leave that with you. Um, they're not here, but I just want you all to know. So, um, Colin, he might be a little, I don't know, he'd be fine with this. Colin's sister died this week of cancer. And one of the great things as Catholics is we can pray for people who have died. Uh, we can lift them up to God. Uh, she died very young. She was 57, I think. Um, so her name's Lisa. So Jesus, we commend Lisa to you. And if you would join me, we'll pray for her. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And in other news, these two got engaged. Congratulations. You guys want to do it right now? The wedding? We, we could. We could. What did you say? Their family continued in line. Their family continued in line, that's true. That would be funny because I was like, um, hey, family, by the way, uh, yeah. Yes, my, your mother would kill me. Um, Patrick, can I have the RCIA box? We haven't done questions in a long time. Um, so we are way behind. I just want you to know that I blame you. Um, it's your fault. Okay. Is there anything in there? No? Okay. So no questions in there. Is that donations so, box? No. Yeah, right? Yeah, there's nothing in that either. No. That is the question box. If you don't feel comfortable asking a question vocally, verbally, you can do it written in a written form. Okay, so we're at a kind of a critical point. We're close to Easter. Um, tonight, what I, my plan is, I want to talk about a few more things about Mass and what happens in Mass. Um, that's why we have vestments down here. Um, but before we do that, I just want to open it up for questions in general. Yep, Nicole. Are you going up to church in Mass or not tonight? Not tonight. We're not going up to Mass to the church tonight. That's not the plan. We can walk through it tonight. That's the part of the plan tonight is to walk through things. Anybody else? Brian? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. That'll be part, I was planning on that tonight, but let me write it down. Yes? Oh, okay. And 
So if you are, well, you can talk about this, the white garment, and if you're baptized, if you're going to be baptized, we want you to come to the Easter Vigil not wearing white, and then after you're baptized, you're going to change into white, and we're going to talk about why in a second here. Doesn't have, thank you. Doesn't have to be a dress. Um, it can be a white blouse. It could be whatever. For the Easter Vigil, we hope you dress, you know, nice. You don't have to dress for prom, you know, but it can, but, but nice. Other questions? Okay, so last week, I hope, you know, if you were watching last week or if you were here, right, one of the things in the Catholic Mass in the worship of God is that everything has meaning. Um, and a church, as we did last week, a church is meant to be theology in stone. Um, and so when you walk into a church, right, if you remember last week, um, our architect taught me this, the doors should be a little heavier. As, and it's meant to say to you, there's a, there's a barrier here between normal life and a place that belongs to God. And so you feel that, that you're going somewhere different. Right? This is why Catholic churches don't look like strip malls. No, not many throw shade on those that do. But I do think they're missing something. When you walk into a church, right, you and I have bodies. And so it's important to us not just that people say words, but that we can touch and smell and see. And it's an amazing mystery to walk into when the Christian mystery of redemption in a church that's built properly, the mystery of what it means to be a Christian should be surrounding you. I love that. Um, <clears throat> so tonight we'll walk through the Mass and the parts of it. Kind of step by step. If you want, if you have any questions, stop me at any time. Okay? Um, so before we do that, though, let's answer the, the white garment thing. So a um, couple of show and tell things we'll do tonight. Um, so a priest. Um, so this garment is called an alb. It just comes from the Latin word that means white. Um. And so what this is, is it's the same thing. Those of you who are going to be baptized, you will wear a white garment after you're baptized. And if you've already been baptized, the day you were baptized, you had a white garment on. And the reason is, um, all throughout Scripture, there's this idea, and, and the most prominent place is in Colossians. Let me look at that really quick. So in Colossians 3... Um, St. Paul talks about this. Philippians, Colossians. Um, so Paul talks about baptism. And in chapter 2 he says, You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And if you remember us talking about baptism, circumcision in the Old Testament is, this, is the entrance into the family of God. It's the entrance into the covenant. But in the New Testament, it's not just for men, and it's not just for Jews. It's for everyone. Women, by the way, were part of the Old Covenant, but they didn't have the symbolic marker. In the New Testament, all of us do. Um, <clears throat> in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh 
in the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. So St. Paul says, in baptism, you put off your old life. He says you put off your body of flesh. In the ancient world, we know the way baptisms were done, is you would walk into a room, and you would, be, you would strip naked. By the way, some people will tell you, in the New Testament, there are deaconesses. Phoebe, his name is deaconess. And in the ancient Christianity, there are female deacons. And some people will say, see, we need women priests. Here's a problem. The word deacon means servant in Greek. And only with time did it develop to mean a specific order of the priest of ordained ministry. So what this was, was in the ancient world, you stripped naked, and that was symbolic of your old life. My old life is now behind me. And so St. Paul says later in chapter 3, verse 5, he said, he's saying, Because you were baptized, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So you, you stripped naked, Aren't you glad you don't have to do that now? I actually think it's so cool. I think it's so beautiful. It is. It's beautiful. But obviously, Christians have always been very careful about modesty. And so the deaconesses, we have lots of evidence of this. In ancient Christianity, deaconesses were the women who helped the other women undress as they were going to be baptized. And then what they would do is they would make their way down into the water in a way that was modest, and only then would the priest come out to pray the prayer of baptism and to baptize them. But anyway, so you strip naked, you put, and that, and by the way, if you're being baptized, and even if you've already been baptized, what St. Paul says is your baptism means your old life is dead. You were crucified with him, which is Colossians 2 and 3. It's Romans chapter 6. Your old life is dead. You were baptized, you came out of the water, and you were clothed with the white garment. And so St. Paul says here in Colossians 3, um, he says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, right? My old life is dead. I was stripped naked in baptism. And that life that was about Brian Larkin, that was about pleasure and power and ego and comfort, that... Brian died in the waters. Put off the old man with his practices and put on the new man who is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. By the way, this is undisputed with scripture scholars. This is a passage about baptism. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones Holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, loneliness, meekness, patience. Paul goes on and on, and he culminates this verse. He says, um, Over all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if you're being baptized, this is what it means. You're not strong enough on your own, neither am I. I have plenty of sins in my life today. But what it means is that when I was baptized, I was crucified with Jesus. My old life, I can't live that life anymore. Once I know I've been loved and that God died for me and rose from the dead, that old life where I just was like everybody else, 
That life died in the waters. And died on the cross. Right? And all this should be coming together. Remember that story? My, my friend Father John, when we were teaching Totus Tuus, which is a little kid summer vacation Bible school thing, this little kid looked at him and he goes, my faith is coming together like this. <laughs> I hope your faith is coming together like that. Right? Because guess what? Your, your old life died in the waters. And baptism, in Romans 6, St. Paul says, you died with Christ on the cross. But it's also, 1 Corinthians 10, the Red Sea. Right? At the Red Sea, Egypt, symbol of sin, the Egyptian army dies in the waters. There's death in the water. There's new life on the other side. So Pharaoh's armies died in the waters. Israel has a new life on the other side on their way to the promised land. Jesus died on the cross, and St. Paul says that is baptism. Jesus dies, but he rises to new life on the other side. When you are baptized, your old life died in the waters. And you are called now. You won't do it perfectly. If you do, please help me, because I need a lot of help. But you are called now to leave that old life behind. So the symbol of that is this. When you're baptized, if you get baptized, I will, there's, there's liturgical prayers about this that call you that this is symbolic to you, that your life is to be pure and clean and free of sin. When I get ready for Mass, I put this album, and what it's supposed to say to me is, Brian, your life has to be different. You were baptized in Christ. You were made clean. Your sins were washed away by his blood. And now you must live that life. Isn't that pretty cool? Love that. Um, and then Paul says there in that passage in Colossians, in Colossians 3, uh, what is it, 3.14, he says, over all these things, right, we've got to put on virtues. If you're going to live the Christian life, you're going to struggle to do it. It's hard. That's why we have confession. And I will be the first one to tell you that I have a very long way to go. I have a, very, a lot of virtues that I need to put in my life, like compassion and kindness and patience, gentleness, courage, all these things. I'm not there yet. But that's what I'm called to. And so Paul in uh, Colossians 3.14 says, Over all of those things, which is your white garment, so what you do at Mass is supposed to be mirrored in the way you live. And what you do at Mass is meant to be mirrored in the way you live. Over all these, Paul says, put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the culminating piece of all virtue is love. It's divine love. In Greek, it's agape. When translated into Latin, it's charity. It's a love that is not just a human love. It's a love that's a divine love. It's the kind of love that Jesus Christ has. That's the culmination of the entire Christian life, which is why, you know, when you get married, I don't know if you guys have picked this reading, but when you get married, well, most couples, the most popular reading is 1 Corinthians 13, um, where Paul says, you know, if I have all knowledge and all wisdom, so as to move mountains, right, and I have all these different virtues, but I have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, right? It does, it is not envious or rude, it does not boast, it does not rejoice in the wrong, but rejoices in the truth, right? 
So in Catholic uh, symbolism, for the priest at least, this is divine love. This is called the chasuble. There will be a test. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I guarantee you 99% of Catholics can answer that, the name for this. But this is called the chasuble, and it is a symbol of the love of Jesus Christ. What it's supposed to say to a priest is that when I walk into the altar of God, it isn't just something where it's like a nice, cute thing that we do normally, but I am supposed to be clothed with divine love, divine agape, divine charity. I am supposed to be transformed to be in God's presence, which is what we've talked about with purgatory, is what we've talked about why we start Mass with confessing our sins, to be in God's presence. You have to be holy, and every time I put on my vestments, there are prayers that remind me of that. Pretty cool, huh? Patrick. Is there a significance to having colors everywhere? Thank you. Colors. The answer is yes. So there are different colors we use in the liturgy. <clears throat> um, so uh, we have different seasons. Right? And like, don't you love seasons? I love seasons. I love being in Colorado. I'm, as I age, I love winter less and less. But winter helps me appreciate spring and fall and summer. And I love the change of seasons. There are also seasons of life. So in the church, there's green, which we wear in ordinary time. I'm just going to put OT, which also I use for Old Testament, but deal with it. Ordinary time. So just kind of ordinary time is not a special season. It's green. This is kind of fun in RCIA. This is what parents teach their little kids when they're trying to get them to behave at Mass. Is they're like, what color do you think Father Brian's going to wear today? Right? And at RCIA, I'm like, what color do you think I'm going to wear today? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so green is ordinary time. So uh, right now we're in Lent. What color do I use during Lent? Purple, right? Purple is a penitential color. We use it during Lent and Advent. So whenever you see purple, the church is saying to you and me, right? And again, you have, you have a body. You don't, we're not just supposed to speak words to each other. Words are good. But you're more than that. And so when you walk into a church and the purple banners are hanging and the vestments are purple, it isn't just a word spoken. The church says something to you in the way it's clothed. Right? Um, we have um, white. When did we wear white? You all kind of whispered. <laughs> I heard some of it. Easter's one. Christmas. Those are the two big ones. Easter and Christmas. Christmas. I just did that. Sorry, deal with it. Saving time. Um, <clears throat> So Christmas and Easter, we wear white. Resurrection, white, it's beautiful. Um, white is generally for high feast days. Um, we have red. You, I don't think you've seen red yet, but at least many of you. When, do we, when would I wear red? Martyrs and what? Holy Week, yep. So red is blood, right? Or it's either blood or it's the Holy Spirit. 
So red is fire or it's blood. And so when there's a martyr, when or in Holy Week, when Jesus dies on the cross on Good Friday, it's red. Um, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends in fire, it's red. Um, and then we have Patrick's favorite, which is pink. <laughs> pink, you only wear twice a year. I did not have pink vestments, and everyone made fun of me for that endlessly. And then Father Mike, when he went to another parish, his parting gift was to buy me a pink vestment. Nice. And luckily it was tasteful, which is a surprise. Um, <laughs> so pink, usually what pink has to do with? Pink comes, it's a mixture of purple and white. And what it is, is during penitential seasons, when we're asking God for his mercy, we're reflecting on our faults and our sins, you throw in a little white and it's like hope. And so in Lent and in Advent, there's one Sunday in each season where the priest wears pink. And it's this call in the middle of a hard journey. It's a call to remember hope. Okay, does that answer? Yeah. Okay. Other questions? Yes. Claire. Yeah, if it makes me feel better, I remember Father Brady would call the pink rose. But or rose. Yeah. By the way, she's Father Mike's sister, so. <laughs> it's like. No. Oh, no, you're Father, you're, you're the brunette. My brother leaves me. Sorry. <laughs> You're kind of on memory, I'm not going to say that. Okay, um, so pink is that. Other questions? Okay, so let's do a little bit more on the mass. Um, oh, let me, um, I have a ch that chalice. So if anybody wants to, um, to look at a chalice, I'll get back in a minute. Um, so this is one of the chalices we use here at Mass. If anybody wants to feel it, it's a sacred thing. But it's not sacred because it's nice. It's not sacred because it has gold plating. That's not why it's sacred. It has gold plating, and it's sacred because it holds the blood of Christ. Right? It's, it's that way. It's not that it's because it's nice, it's sacred. It's not that. It's we make it nice because it holds something sacred. That's the way it goes. Um, that's all I have to say about that. Does anybody have any questions about chalices or any of that kind of stuff? This will be over here. So back in the day, you would get the, the body of Christ and you would get a sip of wine, yep. blood of Christ. That's not done anymore. Only during COVID. Only during COVID. We will be back to that as soon as... Oh, you will? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So the question for those of you in TV land is... Right now, we're only doing the body of Christ for non-priests. But as soon as COVID's kind of when we feel safe with it, we will be distributing the blood as well. Then not all churches are offering their body of Christ. Yep. So that's a judgment call. Okay. Um, you can receive, and we're going to do this tonight. Later on, we're going to talk about how do you receive the Eucharist. We're going to do that. We'll go through every, Nicole loves this one, the heresies of receiving communion. There's a bunch of different heresies. So Michelle will talk about that. <laughs> so here's how it goes. So at Mass, right, if you remember, there's two parts. There's the first half is the liturgy of the word, right? And remember, liturgy means worship. And so the first half is where God teaches us 
through the readings and through the homily, right? And if you have a priest or a deacon who's doing what he should be doing, is the homily should not be about him. It should not be about being nice. It should be about what the Word of God says. That's what it should be about. I know, a bunch of you are like, amen. Um, the second half is the liturgy of the Eucharist. And if you remember when we talked about the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, those are the two parts of the story. The liturgy of the word, Jesus walks with them, and he explains the scriptures to them. And the second half, they break the bread, and he is recognized in the breaking of the bread. Right? And it's clearly a Eucharistic story. Like painfully, obviously, N.T. Wright, not a Catholic, says that if you don't see that that's a Eucharistic story, you have intentionally blinded yourself. Clearly a story about the Eucharist, no question. Okay, um, so here's how it goes. So when we start, we have the sign of the cross. Right, again, you have a body, so you walk in. Right, and when you walk into church, there's the holy water fonts. Those are coming back, by the way. We need to do that, like, this week. Okay. We should do that. Um, you walk in, there's holy water. You dip your finger in it, and, the name, and you do the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, right? Think of how beautiful that is. Water that reminds you of your baptism, and then you confess that you belong to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the way you were made to belong to, the, to God and the Trinity is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Saint Irenaeus in the second century tells us the apostles taught all Christians to, to do that when they pray. Right? If, if people are always like, well, why do you Catholics make the sign of the cross? It's not in scripture. Right? We believe in scripture and tradition. And again, Saint Irenaeus, we have his writings say, the apostles taught that every Christian should be in prayer that way. So if you don't, you're a bad person. You don't have to do it that way, but how powerful is that? Okay, so you make the sign of the cross. When you go to your pew, right, we genuflect, right, we bend our knee, right? What do we genuflect to? The tabernacle, right? So Jesus Christ in the tabernacle, right? The Eucharist in the tabernacle. It is your right knee, right? It's, is this the biggest thing on earth? No. no, it's not the biggest thing on earth. If you screw it up, is it a sin? No. It's not a sin. Does this, is this something that helps us bodily to enter into our faith more deeply? Yes. Right? You guys know, right? the kids, I say, this means yes, this means no, and this is unacceptable. And every kid, I'm always like, yes or no, and everyone's like, no. <laughs> and it's kind of fun. Okay, but anyway, so when you come to church, when you, when you see Jesus in the tabernacle, he's your king, Right? So what I expect from you is not a curtsy. I see some people do this. They're like, <laughs> and I will judge you in my heart. <laughs> Does it really matter? No. But all you do is very simply, it's good to practice. Just write me down, right? Sign of the cross, and you're in. Again, this isn't a huge deal, but there's just something about that that's helpful, okay? Um, Traditionally, again, this is not Catholic teaching. It's not a big deal. But traditionally, your left knee was for your king, and your right knee was only for God. So if you give, 
you know, if you genuflect on your left knee, is that a sin? It's not a sin. No, it's not. It just is something that helps us a little bit. It's meaningful, yeah. So these questions are coming from a Protestant, born and raised. Yep. So forgive it if it's a little bit naive, but how about people that are older that can't yep. get down? They can't get down or can't get up. Is it just acceptable to not yep. do it at all? Wonderful question. So if you're older, if you have knee problems, it's hard to kneel, all you do is just bow. Yep. And secondly, is the homily the same as a sermon would be in a, yep. a church, a Protestant church? Thank you. So homily versus sermon. So a homily, um, the language doesn't really matter, but the language um, traditionally and throughout Christian history, the sermon meant a talk about God that was outside of Mass. It was not liturgical. Homily is a sermon inside of Mass. Does that matter? No. Not at all. So I'll say that. I'll, I'll conflate those all the time. And also, I love, I love Protestants because they think my sermons are short. My homilies love that. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Every year, like, Protestants become Catholic, and they're like, like, FB, like, all these people say your homilies are long. What's wrong with them? I'm like, amen! Right? <laughs> like, talk to them. The long. Yeah. It is. It, well, no, it's not. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's, and that's just the language we use. So, yeah. so in the synagogues, though, when, if you were a Jew before the time of Christ, the rabbi or the priest in the temple, there's different times they would teach and give what we think of as a homily or a sermon. It's just the language we use in, the, in our time. Okay. So, um, sign of the cross, you come in, you genuflect to your pew, you sit down. You'll see a lot of people kneeling before Mass and praying. Do you have to do that? No. You know what's really good to do, though? Pray before Mass. Because you know what happened? is you were driving to Mass with your spouse and your kids, and your kids were screaming, and you're late for church, and you're listening to Britney Spears, right? And you're like, mm-hmm, yep, oops, I did it again. And you're driving to church, and then you get to church, and you're like, why am I so distracted? I can't seem to focus. Guess why? Because you have a million things going on inside of you. And you know what I would encourage you to do? By the way, I am late for everything. I, these guys will tell you, I stress out our sacristans. I show up to Mass like one minute before it starts. And my sacristans, a sacristan is someone who sets up for Mass. They're like pacing. Like, is he coming? Is he coming? I always come. Amy, I always come. Um, but a great thing to do when you're driving to Mass, turn off your radio. If you're going to pray, you've got to be a little bit wound down. You've got to calm what's going on inside of you. And all of us are wound up a lot. So what a lot of people do is they get to Mass. You can sit, you can kneel, you can do whatever you want. But it's helpful to just try to calm yourself. So at RCIA, one of the prayers I like to pray every week is, Jesus, whatever happened today, Lord, I just leave that behind. Right? Because I'm tempted right now to think about, and I got a text from the Archbishop tonight. And it would be very easy for me to be like, oh my gosh, what does the bishop want? Why did he text me? And it's easy to just think about those things. But it's good to just calm down and have that space for God. Okay? Okay, so we begin. The priest processes in. Sorry, question. Um, 
might get this, but the question is, what's the meaning of the bells during the Liturgy of the Eucharist? We'll get to that. Okay. Just remind me, litur the Liturgy of the Eucharist, the bells. <clears throat> so, Liturgy of the Word starts. We begin, the priest makes the sign of the cross, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Lord be with you, and with your spirit, is what everybody responds. Um, I should have brought them tonight. We have booklets for all of you that have all these pieces in them. Don't be embarrassed if a Catholic looks at you. If you're like in the pews and you're like looking through for your responses, if a Catholic looks at you weird, like how do you not know the responses, send them to me. I will beat them up, and that will be embarrassing for them that a priest beat them up. Yeah. Okay, you did give me that book, and okay. I feel like I can't ever find where we're at. Okay. I will bring those, and we'll look through those. Okay. Um, but so we make the sign of the cross. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Um, brethren, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries because if you're going to be in God's presence, you're supposed to be free from sin. And so all we're saying is, Lord, I don't, I'm not perfect. Will you cleanse me as I try to enter into your presence? And by the way, I'm a weird priest. If you go to other parishes, things will be like a little bit quicker usually. Um, I like to go more slowly because I like you to actually think about what you're saying and I like for me to think about what I'm saying. So what I do then, when we say, let us acknowledge our sins, you know what I do? I think about my sins. And you know what's really easy to do? Not think about your sins. It's really easy just to say the words. And what I hope you will do is you will think about your sins. And then we, there's a couple of options we can pray. There's just, but yeah, Nigel. Is that a substitute for confession? It's like a mini confession. So what the church would say is that for serious sin, so for what we call mortal sin, you have to go to confession. But we actually believe that for venial sin, uh, we'll get to this. We might get to confession tonight. We'll see. Venial sin, which is like not a serious sin, we actually believe that this little mini confession at the beginning of Mass absolves all the evil sins. If you have a more serious sin, you have to go to confession for that. But if you're like, you know, I told a white lie, I sped, um, I don't know, any venial sin, which I can make probably 20 of them a day, if not more, those are wiped out in that moment. Yeah. But should you still go to confession when you're doing the Virginia? Or you don't have to, but would you recommend it? We'll get to that. Ask me that when we get to confession. Okay. But it's a good question. We'll we will get that's important. We'll get to that. Um so sign of the cross, we acknowledge our sins, and then you could, there's two prayers. In Advent and Lent, I use the confidior, which is the Latin for I confess. So if you go to Mass with me right now, every time we're gonna say the confidior, which, which says, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and what I failed to do through my faults, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. You have a body. This is a sign of sorrow. So this hasn't always been done, though. I mean, I don't remember growing up doing that. It has been. I don't know. And so, so anyway, you know, again, is that a sin? No, of course not. 
but it's just a helpful action sometimes. That's one option. Another option is just the, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners. Christ, have mercy. Right? And one of the themes I want to hit tonight, and there's a third one, we're not going to do it. One of the themes I want to hit tonight is you can, as we all know, you can say words and they can be meaningless. And you can own words and mean them and it will change the way you pray. It will change the way you go to church. And I'm going to get to that in a little bit here. So, okay, so you do that. Then the priest prays a prayer of absolution, mini confession. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. You'll see a lot of people make the sign of the cross there. Totally fine. You don't have to. Whatever. Okay. Then we have the Gloria during, uh, outside of Lent and Advent. The Gloria comes from Luke 1, where the angels appear to the shepherds. It's a very ancient Christian hymn. Um, and we don't sing that in Advent or Lent. Um, but outside of that, we do. Um, there's some really, really bad versions of it that are terrible. My favorite is just one that goes, Gloria, Gloria, in excelsis Deo. It's really bad. Um, we'll never do that at Lord's. But there's some really bad versions of it. There's some good ones. We sing that. We give glory to God. Then there's the opening prayer, the priest prayers. And it's called the collect. You don't need to know that. What it means is the priest is collecting everyone's prayers together to begin the Mass to offer those prayers to God. Okay, so you pray that. Then we have the Liturgy of the Word. Um, really, all of this is part of the Liturgy of the Word. But then we have the readings. We've been through this, Yannickel. Yeah, Yeah, so we, um, when Mass begins, the, the um, choir will ask everyone to stand. We process in, um, and we usually do an entrance hymn. You actually don't have to do that, but it's just common practice. Almost like 99.9% .9 of churches do this. And, and then usually at Lord's, we have incense. Incense is a sign of prayers rising up to heaven. Both Old Testament and New, it's very prominent in the book of Revelation. And it's a natural symbol. And again, right, you have a body. It's good. You have a nostril. You have two of them. Um, and it smells. It's this beautiful smell. Paul will use this image where he talks about how we are the aroma of Christ to God. And what, he, what he's saying is like when you offered a sacrifice in the temple, there is this fragrant smell that went up, this pleasing and so there's something when you go to church, if it's done well, if the music's good, if the incense is beautiful, it's different. And you can say, I'm going to forget about what my boss said to me today. And I forget that my daughter puked on me last night. And I'm just going to, like, raise my heart to God. And everything is designed to do that. So then we incense the altar. We incense things that are sacred. The day you die at your funeral, the priest will take incense and will incense either your urn or your casket because your body is sacred. Um, 
Okay, so then we were here, sign the cross, with the three readings. Right, we've talked about this if you've been to Breaking Up in the Word. The first readings from the Old Testament. And you have a psalm. The psalm is from the book of Psalms. It's the hymn book of Israel. There are 150 psalms. Usually the psalm picks up on the main theme of the readings. So whatever we sing during the psalm is a good hint at something that's really strong in the readings. Then we have a New Testament reading. Usually a letter of St. Paul. Then we have a gospel. At the gospel, everyone stands. Right, and again, what are we showing here? When, when we change our bodies, we notice things are different. When we, the reason we stand for the gospel, but not these other readings, is because the gospels are the most important part of all of Scripture. Because the gospels are the life of Christ. So we all stand. Um, the priest or the deacon, right, goes to the altar. If the deacon's reading, the priest prays a prayer over him. If the priest is reading, he prays a prayer for himself when he goes to the altar. We pick up the book, and by the way, if you look at our arch, the gray arch on the front of the sanctuary, right, there's blue, and then that big, beautiful wood beam. There's gray above that, and there's an image on that gray arch. Can we remember what it is? It's a lamb. It's a lamb, and what is, what's underneath the lamb? It's a book, right? What book is that? Yeah. It's from Revelation, and that book, that book is the gospel. And in John, when John's in heaven in the book of Revelation, no one's allowed to open that book. The time of God's good news that he's going to save and has saved the world. No one can open that news. And John actually breaks down and he starts crying because no one can open it. And an angel comes to him and says, don't, don't weep. There is one who can open it. The Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, has won the right to open the book. Seven is the number of covenant, right? We have the New Testament is being opened here, the, new, the great news of God's salvation. And so Christ opens that book. And so what happens is right at that moment, right underneath that seal where the lamb is, the priest or the deacon picks up the book of the Gospels. We need a new one. Ours is pretty ugly. Okay. Yes. Uh -huh. um, and usually they're like the story of the life and the connection. Um, and then the other kind of Protestant um, traditions that I've been to, usually a lot of the teaching is always very tangible, like this is how you can apply this to your life. Yep. And I was just wondering um, why maybe that is, or why we kind of do have those themes that kind of get pushed. Sure. So the, so the question is, like, there's a... There are themes in the Catholic, like readings, it's repeat every year. And in Protestant churches, and correct me if I get this wrong, there are like practical themes that seem to be preached on, and here's how you apply this to your life. I, I would say usually oftentimes finding healing, 
these kinds of things, what's the difference and why. Um, complex a little bit, but in, in the Catholic Church and in the many, many Protestant churches actually follow this, there's something called the Common Lectionary. And basically a whole bunch of mainline Protestant churches, what they did is they, they said, this just makes sense. It covers a very vast amount of material in the New Testament. And so they, so actually tons of Protestants have the same scripture readings that Catholics do. But the big Protestant churches today, like the non-denominational evangelicals, they don't generally follow that. Um, I don't know the whole history of why. I feel bad for them, though, because one of the things that, that's really nice as a, someone who follows the common lectionary is I don't, it forces me to preach on all kinds of things. And I think one of the things that would be easy to do is, like, if you go to a big church, they'll be like, we're going to have a series on Galatians. Right? And so for the next six weeks, and there's advantages to that. There's certain advantages to be like, we're just going to read step by step, chapter through by chapter, through Galatians. Right? All six chapters. Um, there's an advantage to that. But what, what's easy to have happen is you tend to preach on the things you know and the things you like. Um, that doesn't mean all of them do that, but it just would be something that would be easy for all of us. Um, and so other than that, I don't really know. I think, um, I do think like both of those are important. Preaching on practical things for people's lives is important. I'm not very good at that, honestly. I'm like, people are like, Father Brian, how do I do this? And I'm like, I don't know, obey the commandments, right? Like, I don't know. But talk to me more if you're about that. I'll have to think about that. Okay, so we have the readings. Then we have a homily. The Catholic Church has a horrible reputation for preaching, which is probably well-deserved. Um, I'm working on it. Um, trying. But the homily should be about these things. Absolutely should be. And it should be well done to the best of the priest's or deacon's ability. It should be well done. Okay. We get all that. Let's keep moving. So then you move. When the gospel is over, a few small things. The priest finishes the gospel or the deacon, and he says, The gospel of the Lord. And you say, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. The priest or the deacon will kiss the book of the gospels. Um, the, one of my mentor priests said, you only get two kisses in your life, gentlemen, from here on out. The book of the Gospels and the altar. And I'm like, damn. Um, but but that's, he kissed the book of the Gospels. If you ever have the bishop there, priests don't do this, but the bishop will bless you with the book of the Gospels. One thing a bishop gets to do. Okay. So then we move to the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, and so we have what's called the offertory. The offertory is where the collection goes around, and more and more people today, right, they just give online, um, and the bread and wine are brought up. But it actually has deep meaning. And we'll get to that in just a second. I think it'll tie together. But what the offertory is meant to be is not just like, okay, I donated a certain amount of money to the church. It's not supposed to be just that. What it's supposed to be is, I am offering myself. 
and this bread and wine that are brought forward will be transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And my life, my simple offering that I have, which isn't much, through the grace of God, the simple thing that I offer, which again, I have very little to offer God. Really, I have nothing. Um, it's kind of like the little kid who like, you know, works super hard and makes his dad or his mom like a little like, I don't know, get, goes and gets a flower out of the garden. It's not much, but it's so beautiful, right? Um, you offer that up, and God can transform that. The bread and the wine will be transformed into the flesh and blood of Christ. And our little things, if we offer them with love, they're not much, but they are transformed by the grace of God into something beautiful and great. So when, when you see the offertory going up, and the priest or the deacon is setting the altar and preparing the altar, this is what you should be praying about. And what it means is you can say, hey, Lord, this week was a really tough week for me. But that bread and wine are being brought up and put on the altar. And I offered the suffering I went through this week. Well, today was a great week. Everything went perfectly. Uh, and you know what, Lord, I'm so grateful for that. And I offer that along with the bread and wine. Good Catholic mothers have been annoying their children for 2,000 years. And what they say is when a child doesn't want to do something, my mom always did this to me. So I'd be like, Mom, I don't want to do that. And her answer was always, offer it up. Right? Offer it up. And um, it's a good answer. It's a theologically sound answer. St. Paul says something very similar to that in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, we can unite ourselves to the offering of Christ. And so when you're a little kid, and I'm like, Mom, I don't want to do the dishes. She's like, offer it up. And I was like, oh. <laughs> right. Good theology, Mom. Um, so all of you ladies out there, when you're good Catholic moms, tell your kids to offer it up. And that's what you do at that moment. When the song's going, the priest is just setting things out, you offer your life along with the offerings. Okay. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Colin's always pointing out the things that I forget. In the Mass, then we do the creed. After the homily, before the offertory, we have the creed. The creed is a Latin word. Credo in Latin means I believe. The creed that we say at Mass is what's called the Nicene Creed. Something really cool about this, there are 12 statements of faith in the Nicene Creed. Um, 12 statements, they're divided into three parts. They correspond to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, pretty cool. So the, the creed, I believe, and when, again, when you say the creed, do you really? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Right? And Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Right? And you go through, and there's these 12 statements of faith in the Nicene Creed. Um, and it's great to just think about them and to think deeply about them. Um, then we have petitions after the Creed. This is the, we pray to the Lord, Lord, hear our prayer. Um, those are not supposed to be like, like individual prayers, yeah, Nigel. 
difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost? It's, two, it's the way the language, so the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, it's just two language traditions. So um, when that word, so in Greek the word is pneuma, with a P, silent P, pneuma in Greek, um, but in Latin it's spiritus, So as it moved through the Latin, it got translated as Holy Spirit. But when it went through the German, and it came into English through the German, the Spirit was translated as Ghost. And so it used to be more translated, if, you're, if you went to church a generation ago, it was more common for people to say the Holy Ghost. In Denver, we have a church called Holy Ghost. It's just the, the way that the word came through languages into English. Same thing. Yep. Same thing. I had this professor. She goes to Lourdes now. She's amazing. Um, and she would always say to us, we were in philosophy, and we had so many questions, and she would always say, stop being so interested. We have ground to cover. Okay? So stop being so interested. Um, no, I love it. Any other questions? Yes. In the middle, it's just often like Yep. Is it up to the priest to pick which language I'm using? Yeah, generally it's up to the priest. As, so there's that's legitimate that's options. The sorry, say again. You just have to get used to the priest to figure out which language you're using. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. You have to get used to the priest. It's true. It's true. Um, so, creed, oh, the petitions are supposed to be for everyone. Not just like we pray for Billy that his test goes well. That's great. We do hope Billy's test goes well. You can ask God for anything. But at Mass, we're all coming together. And the petition should be about something that's for the good of all. They're supposed to be more broad. Um, okay, so then we get to the offertory. We just talked about the offertory. We offer every, our whole lives up on the altar. Um, we unite ourselves to Jesus. And then um, the priest... Um, and here's maybe where we should talk about ad orientum. So most, almost every church you go to, except Lord's, the priest will face you the way I'm facing you. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's 100% legitimate. I have done that for my whole priesthood up until Christmas this year. Um, but I've been thinking about it ever since I was in seminary, about doing it the way we're doing it now, waiting for the right time. So... Here's the danger. The danger that is easy to happen in Mass is it's easy to feel like Father is up there doing his thing, and we watch. Has anyone ever felt that way? Okay. The rest of you are liars. Okay. <laughs> I felt that way before I was a priest. Like, Father's up there doing that, and it's just like, can we get this over with, right? Broncos are coming on, right? It's easy to feel that way. What autorientum is meant to say to you is that that's not what's happening. The day that you are baptized, as 1 Peter 3 teaches us in Exodus 19.6, is that your baptism makes you a priest. In the Old Testament, there are the high priests, there's the priests of the tribe of Levi, but all of Israel, that's Exodus 19.6, is a priestly people. The New Testament is the same. It's the fulfillment. 
There are the high priest class, which are the bishops. There's the tribe of priests, which are ordained priests like me. But all baptized Christians are priests. All baptized Christians. So you, brothers and sisters, are priests. If you have been baptized, you are a priest, which means that you are called to offer sacrifice. So, we'll get to this in a second, but the priest will say, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. The priest is not out there doing something, and you guys are spectators. If you get that way, please tell me so I can beat you down. Okay? You're not supposed to think that. What happens at Mass is all of Jesus himself, first and foremost, but because you're baptized and you're drawn into Jesus, all of us together, united in him, offer the one sacrifice. Right? The church is the body of Christ. What did the body of Christ do? The body of Christ died on a cross for the sins of the world. You, when you're baptized, are made a member of the body of Christ. It is sacrificed. So when the offertory is being offered, you are being drawn in to that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The priest stands at the head of the congregation, but all of us together. And so when I face the same direction of you, what that's meant to say is not, I'm important and you're not. What it's meant to say is it's not me offering it alone. All of us. And so what I always feel like when I face a congregation is distracting for me because I feel like you guys are kind of spectators and you're watching me and like a baby cries and I look and like people are like, oh crap, we distracted Father Ryan, right? <laughs> but when we all face the same direction, what's about, what it's meant to say is that all of us together worship God. All of us together offer the Eucharist. All of us together are united to him. And I love that. But what's more important, yes, that's true. Not, you know, so you guys can't do it in the same way as me. Mm-hmm. But you are priests, and the real heavy lifting, Michelle, is not that I, I any one of you could hold up the chalice and the patent and say the words. The real heavy lifting is my heart and my wife being handed over to God. That's, that's the real worship of God. And when it's united in the liturgy. You can do that from your pew. Before I learned all the stuff we've talked about, the Eucharist, the United the Cross, before I knew that, I was bored out of my mind every Sunday at Mass. Right? And sometimes I still was afterwards. But mostly not. After I learned all the stuff we've been talking about, it changed the whole way I went to Mass. And when I went to Mass, I didn't just watch. I offered myself spiritually if you do that I promise you you will it will change your life absolutely change your life and in your week when you have hard moments in your week and your kids are puking right this is I gotta remind myself I don't celibacy is sometimes hard and I'm like kids are puking right <laughs> like everything's awful there's too much laundry to do bills to pay married life must be terrible um <laughs> You bring all that to Mass. You offer it with Christ. Offer it up. Okay. So the priest takes the patent, which is the little gold disc with the Eucharist on it, 
And sometimes it's out loud. It depends on if music's happening or not. But the priest would say, Blessed are you, Lord God. Um, blessed are you, O Lord, of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth, work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. Blessed be God forever. Something ordinary, through they get to the spirit, is transformed into the bread of life. Then he takes the, the chalice. By the way, the priest pours wine and then water, and he says a prayer that you guys never hear. It's a silent prayer. But whenever I pour a little bit of water into the wine, the water is symbolic of Jesus' humanity being united to his divinity. So we pour the water in, and we say, um, the priest says, by the mystery of this water and wine, um, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Then the priest holds up the chalice, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you, Fruit of the vine, work of human hands, it will become our spiritual drink. Blessed be God forever. Um, then the priest bows to the altar. Um, usually here at Lourdes, I'll be doing incense. We incense the altar because the altar is sacred and we're entering into the sacrifice of the Eucharist. Afterwards, I will wash my hands. You guys stand. The server will in, or the deacon, either one, will incense you because you are a holy people. You're set apart. You're different. We only incense things that are sacred. And so we incense the congregation, um, and we're ready to offer the sacrifice to God. I wash my hands, asking for God's mercy on me because I am a sinner, and I need his mercy to offer the sacrifice of Christ. And then I'll turn to you, and I'll say, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty. And you all say, Again, like, you'll learn all these. If you don't know them yet, that's okay. Own those words. Don't just say them. Own them. Mean them. Um, so then we move into the liturgy of the Eucharist more properly, the Eucharistic prayer. So the priest will do a couple things. Um, we'll start praying to God. Um, there is the preface dialogue, which you have to know what that is. But it's where the priest says, The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Okay. Augustine, one of the best sermons in the history of Christianity. And this is so cool. Augustine was doing the same thing in the 4th and 5th century. Same thing. When Augustine worshipped God, you know what he did? He went to Mass. He was a bishop of the Catholic Church. And he has a whole sermon where he says, he talks about that part of the Mass, and he says, you know that part of Mass where, where I say to you, lift up your hearts, and you say, we lift them up to the Lord? Augustine has this whole sermon where he says, do you? Or do you just say the words? And he says the whole, he has this beautiful sermon where he says the whole Christian life is the lifting of your heart to the Lord. When you go to Mass, the easiest thing on earth is to just say the words. If you do that, Mass will become boring. If you calm your heart and you say, We lift them up to the Lord. And in, inside of your heart and your soul, 
you really make a movement to lift your heart to God, I promise you, you will never, ever be bored at Mass. It doesn't matter how bad the homily was. It will not matter how bad the music is. It will not matter if there are annoying people all around you. You will be united to Christ if you do these things. I promise you. When I started doing this, it changed my life. And not just in Mass, I found joy in a way I had never found. Okay, so we, we do that. We get to the Sanctus, the holy, 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 right? Which is what the angels in heaven cry out before the throne of God. Isaiah chapter 6, and I think Revelation. I always, Revelation, my chapters are bad. I want to say 5. The angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. And we join them, and the prayer says, and so together with all the angels and saints, we sing the hymn of your praise. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And if we had more time, I'd go into all these phrases, but we're going to be in class for two and a half years. So then everyone kneels. Right? Remember, an angel can't kneel, but you can. One of the words in Greek to worship God is to bend the knee, proskuneo. To worship means to bend your knee. And it'll feel that way. There's something amazing about getting on your knees. It's just your body says something that your mouth can't. So we kneel. The priest will, the bells come in here. When the priest prays, there's something called the epiclesis. And that word doesn't matter. But what's happening, the priest, he'll have his hands like this. And then over the bread and the wine, he'll call down the Holy Spirit on the bread and the wine. When the Holy Spirit falls on Mary, she conceives Jesus in her womb. In Luke chapter 1. When the Holy Spirit falls on the group of apostles at Pentecost, it is transformed into the church of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit falls on the bread and the wine, it's transformed into Jesus himself. In our church, right above the altar, is a statue in the ceiling of the Holy Spirit right over where the priest does this. All over the New Testament, to be a Christian, you have to have the Holy Spirit. We talked about that with confirmation. So then the bells are rung. The reason that's done is it's to highlight something. This is a really important moment of the Mass when the Holy Spirit is being called down upon the bread and the wine to transform them into the body and blood of Christ. That's what that's about. Um, then at the elevation, right, the priest, there's what's called the great amen. You don't have to know any of these words. No one knows them except nerdy Catholics and priests, okay? The priest at one point, right, then he's going to hold up the bread and the wine, and he'll say, through him, with him, in him, O God Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Here's why we faced east, where the, why I believe the priest should face east. is because when I hold those up, I'm not showing you the body and blood of Christ. It's not what I'm doing. What's happening is Jesus is on the cross, and we're mystically present to the moment that he offered himself for the salvation of the world. And through him, with him and in him, the body of Christ, which is us, 
It says, me too. Through him, Jesus, through you, with you, in you, I lay my life down. You can go to Mass and you can watch the priest offer Mass, and it will not change you at all. Or you can go to Mass and you can offer yourself as a member of the body of Christ and be drawn mystically. All the sacraments do this, right? When we started sacraments, all seven of them, what they do is they insert you into the cross. Through him, with him, and in him. And I've had moments, I wish, there's a lot of times where I'm like, I would love to just go to Mass and just sit in the pews and pray. Probably freak people out. They'd be like, is that Father Brian? <laughs> right? Like, man, I gotta pay attention to this mass. Um, I've had some of the most powerful moments of my life just kneeling in the pew at that moment and just offering my heart to God. Okay, so everyone stands, we say amen. Um this is it, though. This is what I want you to do. If, if you become Catholic, brothers and sisters, don't just be a Catholic in name. Offer your life to God. Become holy. This is how you do it. It's by not just saying the words. It's by giving your heart to him. It's by allowing him to unite you to himself. It will transform everything in your life. Okay, let's do communion really quick. So there's, we do the Our Father, um, if you have more questions, I feel like the rest is kind of self-explanatory. We have the Our Father. We're going to talk about that in depth when we have prayer. Um, we have the Lamb of God. Everyone kneels again. Um, and then we're basically at communion. And I just want to do one thing. So, a con. Okay, so receiving communion. These are not consecrated. This is just bread. Okay, so when you receive communion for the first time, you will be freaked out. Okay, there are heresies of communion, so you're going to be the priest. Okay, and I get to receive communion, uh, and we got to get on camera here. So this is you guys have all my Colin. This is Colin. Hello. So Colin is me, and I'm him. And so when you go for communion, right? If you know you're going to receive Jesus, you're at Mount Calvary. I don't have to now tell you that you probably shouldn't be chit-chatting. You probably aren't like looking to see like if there are any like cute girls in the congregation. You're at Mount Calvary. And so you're praying with that. And so when you come up, the priest is going to say, The body of Christ. And you say, Amen. Amen. Okay, so do it, let's do it again. So I'm coming up. The body of Christ. Amen. <laughs> Okay, that's heresy number one. Most of you will do that to me. Okay? Is you'll, I'll be like, the body of Christ, people are like, amen. And I will say to you, <laughs> right? you have to come a little closer. Um, by the way, amen, what does amen mean? So be it. It's a statement of belief, but it's so be it. When you, one of the reasons you shouldn't receive communion, if you don't believe it's really the body of Christ, you're swearing an oath before God when you say that. Augustine also has a term of this. He says, when you come forward and the priest says the body of Christ, and you say amen, you're making a vow. 
And he's saying, I swear to God, it's true. And so Augustine has a line where he says, let your amen be true. I love that one. Let your amen be true. Okay, so you can receive, right, um, on the hand or on the tongue, okay? Here's what a lot of people do is, um, so let's do it one more time. So I'm coming up. The body of Christ. Amen. <laughs> okay. People do that all the time. Can you guys see over there? Um, people do that all the time. They'll see out their tongue and their hands, and I'm like, what do you make want? a decision. I don't know what to do. Okay. Uh, the other ones, the other ones you'll do, like if you're going to receive, I want, well, we'll get to that in a second. If you're going to receive in the hand, St. Cyprian in the fifth century, he says, if you receive in the hand, you will meet some Catholics who will tell you it's a sin to receive Jesus in the hand. They are liars. They don't know what they're talking about. That is not true. The church allows it and has allowed it from ancient times. And there are great saints who have taught this. If you're going to receive in the hand, that is perfectly fine. You do it with reverence. St. Cyprian in the fifth century says, if you receive in the hand, make a throne for Christ with your hand. And if you're, what you should do, if you're right-handed, you put your left hand on top. So Colin says, Body of Christ. Amen. Goes right in the palm, and then I can reach around. Right? I know this is like, you're like, are we really doing this? Yes, we are, because you will mess it up. I promise you. Okay? Um, not the body of Christ. Otherwise, I wouldn't have just done that. Okay. At least irreverently. If you receive on the tongue, a couple other big heresies. Um, one is what I call the slot machine. <laughs> okay, I don't mean to be, to be irreverent about this, but it's true. People come up and they're like, I'm like the body of Christ, and they're like, amen. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> okay, people do that. My all-time favorite is people, people come up and I can't tell what they're going to do, their hands are behind their back. By the way, that does help the priest or the minister. If, you don't have your, if you're going to receive on the tongue, if your hands are like behind your back, we know you're going to receive on the tongue. Um, if you're in front, we're not sure, which is, it's not a big deal, but anyway. So the other one is people will come up, and I don't know. I'm like, okay, I think they're going to receive on the tongue. And I'm like, the body of Christ, and they're like, amen. And then they stick their tongue out really, really fast and to their belly button. <laughs> if you do that, it's okay, but my hand's going to touch your tongue. And I'm okay with it if you are. <laughs> but it's just a little weird. And people are like, they're like, amen. Right? And they, and they kind of like lunge forward. And it's like, okay, don't do that. So when you receive communion, all, if you, and I want all of you, I will challenge you this. You can receive however you want to receive. It is up to you. I would encourage you to at least try receiving on the tongue. It's a little different because you don't receive anything else in your life that way. And there's just something about that that I think is helpful. Again, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to do that. It's totally fine. I would encourage you to. I think it's worth trying. When you receive on the tongue, all you have to do is rest your tongue on your bottom lip just outside of your teeth. And my rule of thumb, trust the stick. The bread is very dry. The Eucharist, the body of Christ, is very dry. It will stick to your tongue. So your, your tongue does not have to be in your chest. Don't do the slot machine. And uh, so, are you doing this? No. You want to switch? 
One of the things I might do sometimes is sometimes I will even put my like middle finger just underneath your chin. Um, but it's beautiful. If anyone, um, we always are torn up about whether or not to practice this. Mary Rogers is like, don't do it. It takes away from the actual Eucharist, which I think she's probably right about. If you really want to try, we could, we could do a practice with it. What am I missing? So you do the sign of the cross, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you walk away. When COVID, when we feel a little more comfortable with it, there'll be the blood of Christ. Um, real common sense things, but with the blood of Christ, um, you just take a little sip. You don't take a chug. <laughs> you will see people do that. That wine, some people get worried about germs. You do not have to receive the blood of Christ. The, the, the bread and the wine both contain the body, blood, soul, and divinity. So you can receive from either one, and you have received the fullness of Jesus. You don't have to receive from both, but it is a fullness of the sign value to it. Um, when you receive the chalice, the, the um, minister will say the blood of Christ and hand it to you. And just be careful. If you ever drop it, yeah, Brie. Oh, keep going. Okay. When you're done, if you ever drop, if you ever spill some of the precious <coughs> blood, bless you, we try not to. We try not to spill the blood of Christ. We try to be very respectful of this. But it happens. And if it does happen, what we do is we get a, one of the cloths we use for the altar. And you don't have to remember that. Whoever's helping distribute communion should know this. They'll put a cloth down to soak up the blood. Um, and we just don't want to step on it. Again, not a sin, but it's just reverence. Um, and when I tell people, people will come to me and they freak out. They're like, Father Brian, oh my gosh, I spilled the precious blood. And what I always tell them is, that's exactly what Jesus did. Right? He poured out his blood all over the earth. It's okay. Right? We do our best to be respectful, all those things. But Jesus poured out his life on the earth for us. Yep. Um, anyone can. Okay. I, if it's me, I usually will do it right away. Okay. If, you do, if, if, if one of the hosts drops, um, that's Jesus' body. We're respectful. Um, I will consume it right away. If, if you're someone who, who's a little bit worried about germs, which is totally legitimate, that's fine. I will always consume it. If someone else won't, you can always just pull me over. Or whatever, whoever the priest is, the priest should always be willing to do that 100% of the time. But someone will consume it. If it fell on something like really, really gross, which I know you didn't ask us, but you absolutely could. Yep, you absolutely could. There's also um, there's a way of dealing with it. If it's something really, really gross and someone and someone can't bring themselves to consume it, there are ways to deal with that. We don't need to go into, but with reverence and with great love, we, we can handle that. I'll add that if you're receiving the hand, make sure you consume it right away. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you don't walk off with it. There, the occult is real, and people, the occult comes to mass. People, members of the occult, and they know. Believe me, they know that the body of Christ is real, and they will take it to black masses. That is a real thing. 
yeah, the occult, like the, the satanic occult, is a real thing. And there is this thing called the Black Mass, where Satanists worship Satan, and they, they go to Catholic Masses to steal the Eucharist because they know it's real. And so sometimes people don't know that they're supposed to consume, and they'll start walking off, and Catholics will chase after them. And you're like, what's the big deal? That's why they're doing it, in case that someone has taken that to a Black Mass. Yeah, um, okay, so after you receive the Eucharist, you make the sign of the cross. What are you uh -huh. looking at? Doesn't matter. All all that matters, right? Is like you can. A lot of people look at the crucifix, mm -hmm. but the thing is, is that when you receive, Jesus is physically inside of you. So as you do, is you go back to your pew, you get on your knees, you thank Him, and like what I do is I just close my eyes. It's always hard. The natural thing for all of us is you're kneeling, and people are like walking by, and you're like. Everybody does it. But with time, you learn that like God is inside of you, and you will treasure that moment. OK. Am I released? You're released. Mm -hmm. oh, 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 yes. So if there's Eucharist that is, I mean, I know it sounds weird, right? It's like, we don't know what to do here. It's like, it sounds a little weird. Like, left, is there leftover of Jesus? Like, it's weird. So we just call it, and it's okay. There's, we, the term we use is if there's reserved sacrament. What we do is that goes back into the tabernacle, the gold box. By the way, the tabernacle in the ancient church, they always kept tabernacles for the sick and the dying so they could bring the Eucharist to the sick and the dying. And that's why tabernacles started being in every single church. It's pretty cool, huh? Is that locked? Yes, it is locked. It has to be by canon law. Um, it's just a sacred thing, obviously, and we want to keep that. There's famous stories. If I remembered it exactly, I'll try to remind me for next week. There's a famous story, I want to say in, like, I don't know if it was in Vietnam, but in a communist country where the soldiers broke in and, like, disrupted a mass, and they desecrated the tabernacle, and there were the body of Christ, all the hosts were spread out across the church. And true story, there's a story about a saint. I think it's a Canaanite saint. I'll check on this. But she's, it was, the church was under guard so that the Catholics could not go back in to worship. <laughs> and you cry, as I do every week. Welcome to my life. She walked in every night, snuck into the church for our, like 100 nights in a row, whatever it was, and every night would sneak in on her hands and knees and pick up one host with her tongue until she had consumed every host in that church. Love that. Other questions? Yes? So after you receive the bread. Yep. Yep. Same thing. And to, so you'll see everybody will make the sign of the cross after they receive. Do you have to do that? No. It's usually just a habit people fall into, but it's, it's a great way to pray. The, bigger, the more important thing is what's going on inside of you. Right? Like, are you at that moment, do you realize you are at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Right? And then remember, I think we've talked about this, but the whole, Pope Benedict has this great quote where he says, um, so in the Old Testament, 
There's a sermon I give on this from time to time because it's hard to come up with the same with a different sermon every single week and every day for the rest of my life. But there's a beautiful reflection Pope Benedict gives where in the Old Testament, so the word for communion, does anybody remember what's the word in Greek for communion in the New Testament? What is it? Koinonia. Koinonia. Very good, Jen. So koinonia is the word for communion. Um, that's the word for communion, fellowship, partnership sometimes is translated. Um, but it's used both for the fellowship that you and I have, but also for the Eucharist in the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament Hebrew word that's the equivalent is Chabad. In Hebrew. And here's the really cool thing. So Pope Benedict has this amazing essay on this. It's in a book called uh, Pilgrim Fellowship of Faith. But what he says is he says, in the Old Testament, you can have a relationship with God. You can have, you can worship God, you can praise him, you can do all kinds of things. This word, kabad, habad, is used a lot in the Old Testament. Never once is it used between a human being and God. You cannot have communion with God in the Old Testament. So what Pope Benedict says is he says, what it means to be a Christian and what the New Testament is, the New Testament is communion with God in Jesus Christ. This is why this is the beating heart of everything it means to be a Christian. And the reason that you and I should be close to each other is not because we like each other. Uh, it's not for any other reason except that you and I are, have koinonia. We have communion in Jesus Christ. One of the books I've been reading, there's a arguably the top scripture scholar in the United States. Um, this guy named Richard Hayes. teaches at Duke University. He's phenomenal. And I've been reading a commentary on 1 Corinthians, and one of the points he makes is that one of the most startling things about the early Christian church is that it broke down all socioeconomic and ethnic boundaries. So everything we know about the early church is that the wealthiest people in cities had koinonia with the poorest. And that doesn't, it's just easy on a human level to relate to people like you. Right? Like, people tend to like, gravitate to others who are like them. The early church, one of the things that was so beautiful, and we need to get back to this, is that the communion in Christ broke all of those things down. I love that. Okay, any last questions? Yeah, Claire. So communion is, here's the thing, is that communion is the sign in 1 Corinthians, for instance, chapter 6, that we are one body in Christ. So in other words, communion is a sign that you want to be Catholic. And so if, you're, if we're not in communion, this is a lie. The Eucharist is the sign that you and I are in communion with each other. And if, you don't, if you're not in communion with the Catholic Church, Right? We, we shouldn't pretend that we are. Um, there's, a di there's a thousand different ways to explain this. Another way I like to explain this right, is that like, um, 
is through the sexual act, is that what Catholics believe, right, is that in communion, Jesus Christ gives his body to his bride, which we believe is the Catholic Church. Now, as analogously, do we think that means other Christians are not part of the body of Christ? No, we do, but there's something, there's some disunion there. Um, and so, so basically what I would say, so that's one answer. Another really easy one is 1 Corinthians 11. St. Paul says that if you receive the Eucharist, but you don't discern the body, 1 Corinthians, let's read that really quick. Um, So, um, so 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. This is right after Paul recounts the Last Supper, by the way. He tells exactly how the Last Supper happened. And he uses tradition, but that's a whole other thing. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. By the way, there's a great proof text for that St. Paul does not think the Eucharist is a symbol. If you do not eat of the Eucharist in a worthy way, you profane the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, himself and so eat... Uh, where am I? Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. In 1 Corinthians, discerning the body, Paul's already done this in chapter 6, the body is the church. And so, so 1 Corinthians 11 warns us that this isn't just like, and, and I understand why people are hurt by this, but and one last one-liner, and this is one of the hardest questions out there, not because I think it's difficult to understand, but because people, it's difficult to accept. One of the lines I give people is, everyone is welcome in Eucharist, but not on their own terms. Right? There's this old tacky song called All Are Welcome. And I, one Sunday I preached in this at Lourdes. I'm like, all are welcome. I hate that song. But I'm like, but it's true. All are welcome. Everyone's welcome at Lourdes. Every single person on this planet is welcome at Lourdes. Not on their own terms here to receive the Eucharist, you don't get to receive the Eucharist on your terms, you have to receive it on his. Yes? Would that sort of then be the difference between, like, I'm from an Episcopal background, Yep. and they're, you know, oh, everyone's welcome at the table, and everyone takes the Eucharist, and I actually grew up as a little girl coming here with my babysitter, which I never became Catholic until now. Awesome. So, and from a Catholic perspective, right, right, 1 Corinthians 6, the Eucharist is the sign that there is one church. St. Paul says, because there is one bread, we who partake of the one bread are one body. And like, and not to be harsh on people, they don't intend it this way, but as a matter of just historical fact, what happened with the Protestant Reformation is a bunch of groups of people broke off from the Catholic Church, condemned it, and from my perspective, and this is where I'm a little strong, I don't mean to be too strong on this, because I know people don't think of it this way, but they think we're being judgmental. Protestant, that word Protestant, 
comes from people who protested the right of Catholics to exercise their religion. They broke from the Catholic Church, started their own churches, condemned Catholicism as a bunch of heretics, started their own churches, and then they're mad that we won't let them receive communion. And obviously, a lot of other nuances, all people aren't thinking this way, I know that. But the Eucharist is the reality that there is one church, and Episcopalians oftentimes believe in Anglicans in the true presence, but they don't have a true priesthood. They used to. They, they changed the rites. They don't have that. So, there's, so the point, I think, Pope Benedict says this, is he says, for us to have communion with each other, we have, the, the ultimate way, the only way that can really happen is if we love each other, and that's a work of God, and we really have to love each other and work hard on that. But one of the things he says is he says, if there are real problems and real differences, we can assume each other's really good intentions, and we shouldn't pretend that there's not a problem. We should acknowledge that and love each other and work towards a real communion and not a communion that's just, let's pretend we don't. You know, it's like when you go to your family on Thanksgiving and you're like, yeah, we don't, we don't talk about what happened last year. You know, we don't, we don't talk about that. We just, everything's great. Pass the cranberry sauce, right? It's some, something like that. It's a hard question to answer, but it's something like that. Yeah. Okay, we're out of time. Do you want to ask one more? I'm going to ask you something. As a, I just, okay, so if anyone has to go, go, but I want to hear this. So for, <laughs> for the Protestant churches to be receive communion uh -huh. more as a symbol, yep. would, would this be concerning as if they're just drinking judgment upon themselves? The, the Catholic Church wouldn't see it some. What we would see it as is like, they just they misunderstand the teaching on the Eucharist in the New Testament, but more about the real thing is something we want to protect. Okay. And so this is why Catholics shouldn't go to if, if you go to, if I went to a Protestant church or any other Catholic, they shouldn't receive communion there because we're not in communion with each other. And you know how sometimes they say like if you if you go to something that's kind of an ascent, right? Like these guys went through that when they were dating, is that Steph wouldn't receive at the church Patrick was going to, and she it was the right decision. Because you, you look like the biggest jerk, you know? You just feel like such a jerk. You're like, nope, I'm not receiving. And what you feel like is like, nope, not receiving your communion. And now look who's sitting next to you. <laughs> and you feel like a big jerk. But the point is, is that for a Catholic, though, something unbelievably sacred happened on the night of the Last Supper, and we can't pretend that it was something else. But no, Protestants, we think, when they go to those services, again, 99.99999% of Protestants, they're acting with the best of intentions. And we believe that, but we should work together to say, what did Jesus mean in Luke 22 or in Matthew 26? What's actually happening here? And until that happens, you know, we have to love each other and try to come to that conclusion. I do have some announcements. Okay. Thank you. Over time. We are Okay, so there's three Sundays before Palm Sunday, which is so crazy. So the first scrutiny is this Sunday at the 12 p.m. Mass, just as a reminder, which I believe you just go through. A, it, I'm not reading names. It's just you stand up, and the priest walks you through, and it's kind of like a, almost like a, I'm standing up and saying that I want to be here. Kind of it's, yeah, it's like it'll be very simple questions. They'll be like, are you resolved to follow Christ? I am. We'll, we'll walk through that with you. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll give you a script on Sunday. But these are, these are, again, those, like, basic, like, step forward. Are you ready to become Catholic?
and really that's for candidates and catechumens. Correct. Confirmandi, you can come, but you it's not, it, because you were already baptized Catholic, you're already considered part of the family, Correct. like we've said. Um, so, so the scrutinies will be the next three Sundays, first scrutiny, second sun, scrutiny, third, at all at the 12 p.m. Mass. And then Palm Sunday, reminder, is for confirmandi. So if you were baptized Catholic, you're <coughs> receiving your confirmation in the Eucharist, if you haven't received that yet, on Palm Sunday at the 12 p.m. Mass. Um, we are going to have a little reception thing afterwards to celebrate, and family and friends are welcome to come. Even with COVID, we just try to have them sign up for the Mass, but if you have a lot of issues with that, just email <coughs> me personally and tell me how many you're trying to get to come, and we'll figure it out. Um, then Easter Vigil is the following Saturday. Cat candidates and catechumens, I messed up my answer with you, sorry. Um, and that, same thing, friends and family can come, try to sign up, and we'll do a little reception after because that's going to end at like 11. There'll be some alcohol, and <laughs> it'll be great. Um, so, yeah, and then the white garment, that's the only thing for people becoming baptized. But that's pretty much it for the announcements. This week, I'm going to make sure I have everybody's confirmation saint and your sponsors all nailed down. So if you're struggling with any of that, just... We, we, let's figure that out this week. We'll send out an email about each yeah. vigil. There'll be more details. Yes. We'll send out an email with logistics on that. Um, and confession and is before that. Sorry. I was going to explain. What is that? That's uh, the Saturday before Palm Sunday. So where are we meeting with that? In the church. Okay. At 8 a.m. till 10 a.m. Okay. Right. And then for Easter Sunday, um, are, is it still going to be the noon mass then? Or how do you want us to do? Just the Easter vigil. Yeah. You, that counts as your Easter Sunday. Mass. Oh, it does. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no way. It way. totally yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I interrupted you though. No, you didn't. Okay. Yeah. Any other logistic questions? I've had a lot of people email me, and I I know sometimes I'm short. So, yes, Ken. Is it wrong to go to Easter Vigil and Sunday? No, you can do that. Easter Vigil is the highest mass of the year, though. That that's the most important mass of the entire church year. So it will be three hours long. Yeah. If you're not part of the Psalm, the Palm Sunday group, yeah. can you not come? No, you should still come and you support. And you can come to the reception. We're yeah. all one family. <laughs> but you're just not going to be receiving your sacraments. But yeah. Yep. So if you were baptized Catholic, you receive confirmation and Eucharist at the Palm Sunday Mass. If you're coming in from outside the Catholic Church, it's the Easter Day. Yeah, but you, totally, you can still come. And then that's the same thing. Confirmandi should totally still come to the Easter Vigil if you want and support everyone else. Do, um, do people who do your things have to write a paper about their things? Yeah, turn it into me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be grading it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you don't have to write a paper. But you do have to choose a saint. Yeah. You're getting confirmed. And especially if you know anyone who saying. Yeah, I, and I'm going to bug you a lot this week to make sure it's all in. If you've already told me, I have it. So if, if you've already told me and I don't bug you, then you're good. I'm okay. bad at logistics, I'm sorry. No, I'm trying to be like communicative right now. So if there's anything else, raise your hand. Well, I'll be, I'll be here too. This Sunday, I will not be here, though. 